0: This is the Ed Miland Show. Hey everybody, welcome back to Max Out. And before we get into the show, I just wanted to remind you that this is the second part of a two-part series I've done on the election. On really the different perspectives, too, between the more conservative or Republican approach to governing and the more liberal, progressive approach, the Democrat approach. And so this week, my guest is Andrew Yang. I tried to have both sides on back-to-back weeks to give a balanced approach. I think I ask difficult questions, but fair questions, and they're respectful dialogue. And obviously, I'm not a gotcha show, so I'm not trying to catch people in something. But at the same time, I wanted to get you as much information as I can. I created the Max Out program to help you max out your life. And I'm hoping that if you just get a little bit of an insight, a little bit more information, perhaps it confirms what you already believe, or perhaps you learn something new. But that's why I did the show this week. I hope you receive it in the spirit that I intended it. And enjoy the program. All right, welcome back to Max Out, everybody. I am so excited today. This is part two of a two-part series, sort of on the direction of the country. And uh, last week, we had Donald Trump Jr. on, and today, I'm really excited. This is one of the bright minds in all of politics and entrepreneurship as well. And The other thing I really like about this man is, which is unique in politics, is I think he just has, he transfers a good spirit to people. His information is transferred in a way that I don't know. It doesn't feel like the normal political environment all the time with a bunch of negativity and a bunch of hate in there. I love the way you deliver your message and we'll let the audience today decide whether or not they actually love the actual message. But my guest today is a former Democrat candidate for president, entrepreneur, former attorney, recovering attorney, Andrew Yang. Andrew, welcome to Max Out.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Ed. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you think I delivered the message positively. That makes me so happy.
0: You do. And and that's refreshing in politics. And, and I, you know, I'm a fan for, for more and more of that. And so speaking of delivering messages, let's get into this stuff. So this isn't a gotcha show, but I'm going to ask you some stuff that I think people want to know. And so we'll move in, we'll sort of weave in and out of the election, some of your views, your proposals uh, that you'd like to see the Democrat sure. Party, you know, institute a little bit more of. But let's just start with the basic question, because I asked Don this. I said, hey, Don, first question, why would the country be better? Because I I think winning, you know, is both, it's mental and it's environmental. And the country itself is an environment. And the leader of that country helps create the environment. And so why in your mind would Biden, Harris, and the Democrat Party create a better environment, environment for people to max out their lives than four more years of the Trump administration?
1: We're in a deep, dark hole right now that has been brought about by this pandemic, Ed. Uh, And to me, it's crystal clear that Joe and Kamala will be better suited to try to use the government's resources to help us be put in position to succeed, really, to help dig out of this hole. Uh, And right now, the direction the country is heading in, 72% of Americans think that right now is the worst time we've ever lived Uh, And you have to ask yourself, is current leadership going to lead us in a different, better direction or in a similar direction to where we're heading right now? Um, To me, we need to head in a different direction. We need new leadership. You don't just stay on uh, on a course that's not leading you towards where you want to be. You have to change course. You need to switch captains. And in this case, Joe and Kamala are the team that... It's it's just going to uh, point us in a better direction and turn the page.
0: How do you figure, how do you look at Joe Biden as a new leader though? So 47 years, this guy's been there, you know, and I, I have a hard time when I even ask people to support him. Can you name me like five really significant accomplishments or big differences he's made? So how do you, and I ask this with all due respect, because there is a guy in there now, but the guy we're replacing him with has been in DC for 47 years. How's that a new leader in your mind?
1: Well, first, let me say that I ran for president. <laughs> and so there, there was a, a, a point where um, I believed I could be that leader. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the voters decided, the voters decided on Joe, in large part because uh, I think Americans were comfortable with what Joe uh, would do as president. Uh, and if you look at his time in office, he helped lead the bailout of auto manufacturers during the, the Great Recession, which ended up preserving... Uh, millions of jobs over time Um, and one of the things I said uh, on TV the other week was he can bring the entire center and I would say actually the entire country in a direction uh, because he makes it the new reasonable. Uh, Joe Biden's been a fairly reasonable political figure in public life for a long time Uh, But the situation we're in right now is so new to us, where you've lost at least 11 million jobs that we know about, probably more, uh, that the government's going to need to do things that we've not seen it do uh, historically. Uh, And our government right now is not very effective at getting stuff done. And so someone like Joe actually is ideally suited to help forge a middle way that people on both sides of the aisle will be able to to find elements that they like. Uh, And that's why I think Joe actually has the capacity to be exactly who the country needs right now, because I'm an entrepreneur, uh, but we have a multi-trillion dollar hole that's been blasted in the economy. Uh, And we've had a very, very imperfect stimulus recovery act back in, gosh, March at this point uh we're we're waiting for another version but because of the dysfunction in washington we're not getting one
0: Mm
1: -hmm. so this is not a business as usual situation this is uh we're gonna need our government to do some things that we've not seen it do uh in years a a generation Uh, and to get our government to do different things in this environment you need someone that people have a degree of trust and faith in and has built up institutional credibility over time, uh, and I think that Joe is that president. Joe is going to be that leader.
0: You, uh, and by the way, we won't stay on Joe the whole time. We're going to go to Trump, and we're going to go to your ideas, which is really where I want to get to. But I want to stay on Joe just for a second. I want to ask you a candid question because I did say 47 years. Um, you know, I I, I listen to you and some of the people on the right, and I think, boy, there's these bright young minds out there, and yet we, when I, we got to the final group, and by the way, experience is important too. Wisdom is important temperament is important but I remember thinking when you are on the debate stage and then you had Donald Trump on the other side it's like wow we ended up basically with the people getting the most traction all of them in their 70s Donald Trump is in his 70s Joe Biden's older than he is Bernie Sanders is not a young man Elizabeth Warren is not a young woman I thought where are the young ideas especially in a progressive party like yours it surprised me and you know the criticism, so I wanna ask you directly, and then we'll get into some of your ideas as well, but there's a lot of people that think that Joe Biden isn't even the same Joe Biden from five or 10 years ago. They sense a cognitive issue there. Some of the stuff with the teleprompters lately and the not knowing what city he's, state he's in once in a while. You sat, you were on the debate stage with both he and Kamala. You're one of the few people on earth who were in his proximity under pressure where he had to answer questions. Some of those went well and some of those didn't go so well. What is your take on his cognitive function? And I ask that with respect, but that is an issue on people's minds, as you know. Ed, I
1: talked to him before the fact, after the fact. I've been around him dozens of times. I've had informal half an hour long conversations because we're both waiting to go on stage. Like, you don't mm-hmm. get there 30 seconds ahead of time. You get there 30 minutes ahead of time. Right. Right. <laughs> so so you're there. Uh, and... Joe's strong before the fact. He's strong during the fact. He's strong after the fact. Uh, you know, like some of those debates are not easy. You're on stage for a couple of hours. Um, the TV lights are are shining on you. You've got the makeup on and the rest of it. Uh, and he has never evinced, like to to me, any sign of uh, fatigue or wear. It is actually very impressive. Um, so I, I've been around him in a, in myriad circumstances. Uh, and to me, it's actually a mistake for um, his opponent, Trump, to rely upon this narrative because he, Joe just keeps uh, demonstrating that he's strong and capable in different settings. He's going to do it again in the debate stage uh, in, in a little while. Um, trying to sell a caricature of your opponent to me is is not a recipe for success. You know, like you, you should actually be trying to build your your your, your own uh, uh, following based upon. A track record uh, of things that you've done. So, and that this isn't you. This is you know yeah. the Trump campaign. I would, that, if I that, could interject, I would say this. that
0: that's. I would say both candidates are are um, making that mistake. Both are spending most of their time building caricatures about the other one. And I, I say that to you with respect. I take you at your word that you've seen him function at a high level. And I actually, whether I agree with that or not, I do agree with you that it's a political mistake because you're setting the bar so low. The expectations yeah. are so low that if he even just comes out of this thing decent, I mean. His DNC speech was okay, I thought, but because the bar was so low, he got rave reviews because it was just pretty functional. So I agree with you from a tactical standpoint. I don't know that I my observations from a distance are consistent with yours, but I appreciate your perspective because you've been closer to it than me. Let's talk about some of those more progressive ideas. And one of yours is one that I've spent so much time really contemplating. And so your proposal is interesting to me because I'm not a big redistribution guy. I don't like that. Um, and I think there's this misnomer, I don't mean to dictate here, but there's this misnomer that I get free college or I get free healthcare. know, you don't. The government doesn't have any money. Someone else is paying for your college. Someone else is paying for your healthcare. And I think this is a concept most people don't even understand. The government has no money. The government takes money from taxpayers and then redistributes it. And there could be a fair argument of how much of that money should be taken and should be redistributed and to what purposes and you have an idea that does redistribute money which is his freedom dividend universal basic income i'm going to let you describe it but before everybody sloughs it off i had stephen moore on my show who's one of trump's chief economic advisors he nominated him to the fed he said i'm open to this idea i'd like other social programs to go away but i actually am intrigued by the idea milton friedman very conservative uh, economist, uh, uh, proposed a negative income tax for people in lower income brackets, which is essentially what you're describing here. So would you tell people what your idea is, please?
1: My freedom dividend is a universal basic income, and I was campaigning on $1,000 a month for uh, every American adult. And to your point, this is not my idea. This was something that Thomas Paine proposed, the founding of the country for all citizens, uh, Martin Luther King was for it. Milton Friedman was for a version of it. Richard Nixon came this close to passing it into law and Nixon, you know, obviously uh, isn't exactly anyone's idea of a bleeding heart liberal. (laughs) And then, and then it, and then it went um, dormant for a little while. And I I believe that I helped to revive interest in it, but Mm -hmm. it was an idea that's been with us for decades. And to me, This pandemic has unfortunately brought to the foreground the need for uh, just getting people resources in a time when I thought we were going to be automating away millions of jobs. It turns out that now uh, a lot of those jobs have been shut down because of the pandemic. But the two trends are hand in hand because 50% of companies say they're investing more in automation because it's not... Advisable to have lots of people in a lot of different environments. You don't want them together. So you have Tyson uh, replacing meatpacking workers with robots. Uh, You have grocery stores getting aisle cleaning robots. And uh, Google just came out with AI that's going to replace call center workers. And there are more than 2 million call center workers in the United States. So to me, a version of universal basic income uh, was inevitable based upon technological advances. Uh, And to your point, This isn't a left or right idea, this is a forward idea. This is something that people have been forecasting for a while and it's just that our politicians in DC uh, don't understand how transformative technology is in in many industries and many occupations.
0: How are you gonna pay for it?
1: Well, the way I recommended paying for it is by uh, adopting a value added tax, which is something that virtually every other developed economy has already done. Mm Uh, And one reason why the value added tax is so positive is that you have companies like Amazon right now paying zero in taxes. And if you're conservative, uh, you still don't like the idea of a a tech company paying zero in taxes like that. That's Mm -hmm. not that doesn't strike anyone as like the uh, Mm -hmm. the optimal or efficient way to go. Um, so if you have something like a value-added tax, then the Amazons of the world, the Netflix of the world can't gain their way out of things. They can't just hide all their money in Ireland, which is what they're doing right now. They're saying, oh, like all the profits went to our international division. <laughs> it's right. going, it's coincidentally going through like the, the tax aid. Um, so uh, if we had a, a means of harnessing the incredible value creation that's going on in uh, certain segments of our economy, particularly the technology uh, giants that are now unfathomably wealthy and productive, mm-hmm. then we could start paying for uh, money in Americans' hands around the country, particularly because that money just goes right back into the economy over and over again mm-hmm. in the form of car repairs, grocery bills, daycare expenses, little league sign-ups, uh, and on and on.
0: So uh, but the first the, big step... I, you- I don't mean to interrupt you, but you're going to hit the tech companies for it. And, uh, and one thing everybody should know on this, too, is that you're proposing everybody get the check. And in your mind, that means now it's not a socialist pro- pro- program because everybody, including a guy making a million dollars a year, at least under your original proposal, would still be getting that money. Correct?
1: Yeah. And it's not socialism. It's capitalism where income doesn't start at zero. Uh, we didn't get into my background, but I'm an entrepreneur, I've run companies, I've started businesses, Mm -hmm. and everything works better when people have money to spend. Uh, Everything works better when someone can actually participate in the economy. You don't want an economy where you have a handful of uh, very wealthy people at the top, and then nobody, and then like uh, this massive lower class. Uh, Like the economy functions better, businesses function better, entrepreneurship functions better. uh, If you have a middle class that can actually spend money in the community.
0: So I'm going to give you some hard questions about it because I'm intrigued by the idea. So the first question I think I have is I worry that, well, by the way, most people that support it on the right, if we're giving context are in support of it in lieu of other social programs, meaning you're going to get away with what wel- your uh, welfare is going away. Food stamps are going away and this will be a replacement. You are not proposing that, correct? You're proposing this in addition to current existing social programs.
1: I am proposing, uh, like, not make anyone worse off version, mm-hmm. but, I campaigned on the fact that if you were getting cash and cash-like benefits from certain programs, um, they would be, and you chose the freedom dividend, then your current benefits uh, would not apply. Got it. Um, okay. and, and when I talk to people who are on existing programs, and I campaigned for presidents, or I met a lot of Americans yeah. in different circumstances, they hated the fact that if they got a part-time job and did better, uh, then they were penalized for mm-hmm. it. Uh, yeah. So to me... If you have, I don't think anyone likes that. Like no one on the left should like that. No one on the right, I'm sure, likes the the fact that you're actually disincentivizing people from uh, going out, doing better for themselves, working more. Like it was, I remember this vividly. It was a single mom in Iowa uh, who said to me, uh, she was like, look, I want to work, but if I work, then my benefits go down. So I'm not working, but like this, um, like this is not the way it should work. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So the way I was campaigning, Ed, was that, uh, you get this cash, it's unconditional. And then if you work part-time, you get that too. Uh, and if you are on programs right now that um, overlap with this, then this would uh, be in lieu of it. Got it. Uh, though- okay.
0: So that's interesting. So you're on the my concern about it. So everybody that's listening into this one point, I actually think this is one of the best discussions you could ever hear about how the left and the right might be able to come together. And, and I my concern is you use the word incentive. And I think a capitalist society is based on incentive. You know that one of the concerns about this is that when you start giving people free money, everybody free money, that their incentive is to not work. And that the other concern is, and I'll let you address both of them slippery slope starts at a thousand. Once you start giving away candy, you know how the world works, right? There's a little bit more and a little bit more. And then the person who runs after you goes, it's three thousand, it's four thousand. Then it's not just the tech companies paying, then it's taxpayers at a certain rate at a certain place, and eventually you're into a redistribution economy that's out in the open, doesn't this strip incentive? And two, won't it enc- won't it encourage massive immigration demand on the country to get here to get your free $1,000 a month? So
1: uh, I've been an entrepreneur for a couple decades now. Uh, and I think that most everyone, if you put money into their hands, uh, they're going to do what you expect them to do, they're going to spend it. Um, and if you have programs right now that literally say, look, you're going to get, get less for your family. If you work more, then that's a, that's a disincentive to work. Mm -hmm. But if you put money into someone's hands and say, this is your money, uh, it's yours. You do what you want. You're American. You're a citizen. We're not going to monitor or police it, or make you fill out paperwork for it or any of this stuff like they do in Alaska, Alaska, Alaska they get petroleum every year. Mm Uh, no questions asked, unconditional, uh, and then if you go out and do anything under the sun work part-time volunteer start a business you get that too like that to me is not a disincentive for people to to work and as a numbers guy uh, when you've put money into people's hands you have not seen a reduction in work hours except in two groups new moms who spent more time with their kids uh, and teenagers who spent more time actually finishing high school and not Work, working. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's that mad at either of those groups not working as much uh, work levels among other groups, the same. Yeah. Uh, so to me, this is a much more powerful incentive to work and better yourself than our current programs, which are like, look, if you're doing terribly, we'll give you some money. And if you do better then you get less, like, yeah. like that to me is the, is the worst of all worlds.
0: I would just say to you, because I'm again, I'm open to the idea. There's some anecdotal evidence that contradicts that, though, I, I you know, you and I know a lot of entrepreneurs. And during the CARES Act, There were, you know, and we all probably know somebody that's told us this too. There are people, and I want to talk about how we fix it, but there are people at the bottom end of the income range saying, I'm not going back to work. I'm doing okay right now. And that there were, I had contractor friends of mine tell me, hey, I can't get subs to show up to the project because they're doing better if they stay home and take this CARES Act money. So there's been some evidence even recently that that may not be true.
1: Well, Ed, that's actually evidence for what I'm saying because the CARES Act benefits you're talking about were tied to not working. Um, they were saying, look, if you have okay. unemployment benefits, we're going to rev them up. Um, if all those people were going to get that money anyway, and then mm-hmm. if they showed up to the job, to get, uh, they get paid more, then you probably would have had different conversations. But right now, like, that actually shows how broken our systems currently are, where we will give you this money, but only if you don't work. Like, if you do work, then you don't get the money. Like, like that, that is something that we should all not be thrilled about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but right now that's the way our benefit system works, and because it was an emergency, we just plowed it through state unemployment offices, which to me was not the right approach. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like mm-hmm. to me, we should have just gone unconditional, been like, "Look, here's cash relief, like great news," and then you wouldn't have had those kinds of interactions because it wasn't based on the unemployment system.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the overall economy, and this is now sort of a Biden Trump type thing. But you know, you'll head the conversation. I uh, if I were running, and I'm not. I I would be running on, there is a wage disparity in this country between the rich and the poor. Um, Oftentimes I feel like the Democrats' party solution to that is let's tax these rich people who aren't paying their fair share, and um, which by the way, statistically is not true that rich people don't pay their fair share. But having said that, my argument would be let's raise wages. Now Trump will say, hey, we've had significant wage growth the last couple of years, but clearly in this country. There was a time in the country where in the 50s or 60s, a single income family could have a job and support a family and own a home and get a decent education and live a good life. Now that's very, very difficult. The bottom and middle bottom wages are not high enough to sustain a quality of life, even if they are employed to some of your points. And so I wanna ask you about this idea though of redistribution of money and taxes, because let's just be honest, a lot of people on the conservative side, one of their main concerns is, If Biden gets in there, there's going to be more and more taxes. And he says it's just on the top, but it ends up going lower. And I just want to give you some stats and I'll let you respond to what you think about this. This idea that Bernie says that the rich need to pay their fair share. I've heard Joe Biden say this too. And I know they know that that's not true. I know that he knows what the stats are. Here's the statistics. 45% of people pay no income tax, nothing. So we're running a country right now. And by the way, that's because they don't make enough money. And we need to fix that problem. But 45% pay no income tax. The top 1% of taxpayers earned 21% of all the income and paid 39% of the taxes. So I'm not arguing for the top 1%. What I'm just suggesting is this idea that everyone's, they need to pay their fair share, at least of income tax. They make 20%, they pay nearly 40% of all the revenue. So under Biden, he's proposing a 39.6% top rate. I live in California. So right now I'm at say 13 on state and you could be whatever state you're in. There's a proposal now to raise that to nearly 17. So let's just use round numbers. Someone in the top bracket now pays somewhere around 50% state and federal a little bit more, say 53, 54%. So they keep 45 to 47% of their income. How much? more does the democrat party want to take from people that want to build wealth want to become successful can they not keep 45% of their income or are we only supposed to keep 30 like what is this fair share number that everybody supposedly thinks is fair i would think 50% of all the money you make going back to taxes is more of a fair share but it seems as if that's not enough for the democrat party how would you respond to that
1: I ran a private company in New York City for a number of years uh, and it was an LLC, um, my effective tax rate was also 50% uh, or so. I remember going to my accountant and being like, shouldn't like, like, uh, is this really the way it operates? I, th- I thought that, uh, you know, like there were ways, ways around this sort of thing, like, oh, no, that's pretty much like the, the way it goes if you're um, like uh, the a shareholder of a private company um and it was a high tax area so i lived that aspect um and to me the biggest inequities that we have right now first i i will say that over the course of our country's history um our tax rates right now on um capital gains in particular like are lower than they've historically been Mm -hmm. um but the but the the main argument i would make is that right now there are certain entities uh, that are profiting to the tune of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, and that's where our attention should be paid. Our data, your data, my data, generating in the aggregate over $200 billion a year in value for a handful of firms, and no one's seeing a dime. And we're all looking around. Uh, to me, it's it's generally a loser to look around and being like, hey, your fault, my fault, you're not paying your share. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, 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 do I think that tax rates could stand to be more progressive, particularly on capital gains? Yes, I do. Like, do I think that private equity giant saying like, hey, uh, you know, like nothing see here, this is all, um, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like this real income this is all, like, like mm-hmm. you know, like I, I'm against that kind of game playing. Um, but I'm more against uh, the fact that we have a handful of firms that are generating unprecedented levels of wealth uh, and laughing all the way to the bank. Uh, you know, you have, Literally trillion dollar companies, richest companies in the history of the world um, that are paying zero or next to nothing in taxes while the rest of us yell and scream about how we're going to help, uh, you know, like help the country through this pandemic. Our data worth hundreds of billions of dollars a year. uh, That to me is where we should start. Uh, One joke I told Ed is like, I don't care about the town dentist. (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. Like I I care about Amazon. It's like Mm -hmm. as... A numbers guy, like there's that old joke, it's like, why did you rob the bank? Because like, that's where the money is. It's like, where's the money going now? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's up to the cloud. Um, uh, and it's just going to get more extreme over time where you have one of the, the hypotheticals, but it's not even a hypothetical anymore. Uh, let's say, so Google the other day announced that they have AI that's going to do the work of call center workers. Uh, they said, you know, Google call center. That, that sounds great. I would love that if I was running a company, uh, there are over 2 million Americans who work at call centers right now. Uh, so what happens to them? Mm-hmm. And then you got to ask yourself this. Let's say you have 3 million truck drivers in this country, which you do have. And then let's say I invent AI that can drive trucks, which they're working on. How much is the AI company going to pay in taxes? Right. Uh, and then how much do the 3 million truckers pay in taxes? I guarantee you those 3 million truckers pay, mm-hmm. <laughs> pay a much higher percentage of their taxes mm-hmm. uh, than that yeah. AI company will. Um, so these are some of the 21st century issues that we have to be, uh, we have to be actually getting our arms around and tackling as a country and as a tax system because our tax system right now is out of date. It's anachronistic, mm-hmm. uh, and the smartest firms are just running rings around us.
0: Yep. I uh, by the way, this is the type of discourse that everybody in the country should be having about these issues, like reasonable discourse, because you are right about the truck driver versus the the actual rate for some of these big tech companies, which in some cases pay nothing on billions and nothing. billions of dollars. And so you do make a good point about that. I asked you a question about immigration earlier, and we didn't get to go close the loop on sure. that. I don't yep. understand how uh, a party that uh, is for low-wage earners – So, and by the way, I live in California. One of the things I can't stand is when immigrants are demonized and even people that I know that fled to this country just to be able to feed their families. I don't love hearing that they're criminals, rapists, and murderers all the time. It's something that I just feel like is just an inarticulate, untrue thing to say and hurtful because I live in an economy where we would probably not have been able to function from our groceries to our food to uh, our homes um, without that part of the economy. And so we've been complicit in allowing people to come here and work that way. Having said all that, that doesn't mean you can't now be firm on immigration policy so that it does not suppress the wages for the bottom part of the country. So the Democrat Party's kind of odd to me where they say we're really for the little guy, yet we sort of look away completely at all of the illegal immigration that's taking place. We actually kind of encourage it and uh, that 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 doesn't somehow suppress these wages that we're all complaining about that are so low that then causes you to have to have a guaranteed income to these people. So I'm just wondering, why can't there be a grand bargain where we say, hey, maybe there's gonna be this guaranteed sort of income, but we are going to be clear about who comes in and out of this country, not because they're rapists and criminals, but because it's important from national security, and because it's important uh, um, from a, from an economic system standpoint. Why can't both of those things coexist?
1: my proposal was that we have this freedom dividend this guaranteed basic income for u.s citizens to your point uh and and then we have to try to get our uh uh, our facts straight and our arms around the fact that there are these over 12 million people who are here and undocumented Mm -hmm. uh and we need to have a rational uh approach That, like you said, does not demonize folks. I'm the son of immigrants myself. So uh, I'm of the opinion that immigrants start a lot of businesses, uh, you know, do a lot of great things in technology. My father generated 69 U.S. patents, um, which... I And I used to joke with him. I was like, how much you get paid for the, these patents? I was when well, I was like 15 when I figured out what my dad did for a living. And I was like, how much you get paid? And then he was like, I get paid like $300 or so um, per patent. And then I was like, it doesn't sound like very much. And then he said, well, I also get paid a salary to house, food, uh, feed, and clothe you and your brother. <laughs> and so that, so that was like a... Uh, uh, but it's always like, oh, I understand how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like that was a great deal for IBM. It was a great deal for the U.S. And it was a great deal for me and my family because mm-hmm. you know we got to, to come of age here and mm-hmm. this country has been great to us. Um, so to me, um, all these problems are intertwined. And I was reading about how there was a grand bargain on the table uh, in about a principled approach to immigration that died. And it died because of politics. Mm -hmm. One of the the things that's holding us back right now, Ed, is that there are better uh, politics around leaving the problem unsolved uh, than in solving them in many of these uh, in, oh, in, in many of these circumstances. And that's what's killing us. We're looking I, around being like, "Why the heck can you not get something done? And it's like, actually, I'm better served by leaving it undone and keeping people angry.
0: Well, I have to tell you, you're probably not going to like this. But that's where you and Donald Trump literally almost verbatim said the same thing. He said, it's much easier to campaign on a problem than it is to solve it. Because once you solve it, you can't run against it. And so very similar um, approach. By the way, I want to say one thing too, just for the sense of of everybody understanding my viewpoints too. I'm not, by the way, suggesting that people, there are not situations where people have come here illegally and had uh, horrific crimes take place. That has happened, and I'm not a fan of sanctuary cities. What I'm suggesting is that's not the majority of people. And we've got to find a solution to this. There are 12 million people here. We're not sending everybody back. And so how do we come to a solution? How do we incentivize, though, um, proper immigration? Because your parents came here legally. So let's move off of immigration a little bit and move over to COVID because you brought that up. Because I, again, I like universal basic income. You know, I will just say to you that prior to COVID, we had very low unemployment. And I know you're forecasting the departure of these jobs, but we're, we weren't in that situation prior to COVID. And we haven't lost those jobs necessarily yet because of automation. We've lost them because of the shutdown. And I hear the Democrat party be very critical. In fact, I think it's the number one thing hurting Trump in the polls right now, more than maybe anything. Uh, The social justice issues we'll get to in a minute, but COVID has been. What the heck would Biden have done differently? In other words, if what Trump screwed up was so bad, what would Joe Biden specifically have done or the Democrat party have done differently than Donald Trump did?
1: Well, we just got a major, major data point in that direction, Ed, where the post office had this plan to send everyone masks, uh, like every, everyone in the country, get a whole pack of reusable masks uh, back in the spring, back when this was first unfolding. And apparently we did not do that because people thought it would be bad politics. It would be like, oh, this is going to alarm people. It's going to make people. I can guarantee you if Joe Biden were president and the post office was like, hey, we've got this plan ready to go, send everyone masks, Joe would have been like, yeah, let's do it. Uh, so there are concrete things that we could have done um very differently and, and we have to be honest like we're we're right now uh essentially a developing country in our approach to this this pandemic uh you know other countries have been much much better than we have been um we've had this strange hodgepodge approach uh you know essentially leaving it to states to say hey like when your numbers get past a certain point I mean you're in California you've been bearing the brunt of this yep. uh in, in a very serious way uh so Would there have been massive problems, regardless of of the party in power? Almost certainly. Um, Could we have improved upon this administration's performance in a number of concrete ways that have made a difference? Yeah, definitely. You can see that. And in many ways, Trump has been trying to just disavow any responsibility, being like, hey, you know, states figure it out. And and I've talked to folks back during the PPE efforts where uh, the states, and cities and hospitals were like competing against each other for PPE Uh, and then occasionally the feds would come in and then buy some PPE Mm -hmm. like uh, (laughs) not to give to one of the regions but to stockpile Mm -hmm. and so you literally had look I'm all for like uh competition and scrappiness and entrepreneurship but not when you're trying to procure PPE during mm-hmm. a pandemic. Like that, yeah. that is not the situation when you're like, Hey, everyone just fight it out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like, uh, that's the time when you have a national plan, you look down and say, okay, what are the hotspots? Where are the places we need to get this the fastest? Like uh, where are the, the most pressing needs? Here's a mm-hmm. priority list, but we did not have that in the slightest uh, mm-hmm. because this administration is not wired away.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, I, I would give you the masking if that's a true story. Cause I just read that last night too. I haven't confirmed it, but I've read it. You know, I will say the other, though, um, and I get the mask thing, but beyond that, I remember Joe Biden criticizing, I believe, initially when Trump shut down travel from China. My God, what if he would not have done that? I mean, what if it would have went three or four more weeks, right? I think there should be some credit given to him, at least for that decision. And so people from both parties, it seems to me, didn't really get it. There wasn't preparation, even uh, the former administration, there weren't enough ventilators prepared even under Obama had this happened. So it's just, it's an interesting thing at least for me, um, you know, to see politicized.
1: Well, Ed, one of the things that I'd suggest that is, to me, should transcend party lines is many of us have lost faith in our government because we've just seen it uh, fail in, in many, many uh, Respects, mm-hmm. uh, And it's, it's getting to be an increasingly tough argument for either party to be like, put us in charge, and then things will work right. No, it's their fault. You know, like, mm-hmm. like the fact is, a lot of these failures have been going on for years and have crossed party lines, you know, mm-hmm. like, it, like, like, I think this administration has been a disaster in its handling of, of the pandemic. And I genuinely believe that a different mm-hmm. team would have done better. Um, but you, you can look back in the Obama years, and, you know, the, the terrible rollout healthcare.gov and say, well, it's not like government necessarily like hummed (laughs) under like a previous administration. Like the, the frustration many of us feel is just that government should work better. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're having increasingly unproductive arguments because it's not working for anyone. It's not working for us. Uh, and then like, it's almost like, like, well, if, if I happen, if you happen to be in power when it wasn't working, then I can lay this at your, your footstep. Um, but your point, I, I think, is a very legitimate one, which is like, look, like, do we really believe that um, having a different team in place all of a sudden makes our government perform at the level we would get to? The answer is no. Uh, mm-hmm. And the number that I'm going to put out, because I'm a numbers guy, and this is a number that has sure. blown my mind and stuck with me for days, um, congressional approval rate rating <laughs> right now nationwide is something like 21%. percent mm-hmm um the re-election rate of members of congress over the last number of decades is 94 percent so imagine having uh, imagine having a company run like that like you would never like you know it's like if, if things are starting to go wrong you'd be like okay like well like you know we should introduce some accountability and some um like some performance like uh improvements here I, and that's one reason why i was happy to come on your show is because you know like You know, I'm an entrepreneur and a builder and like a high performer and I push myself. I know that's one of the themes of uh, this podcast is like how to perform at a higher level Mm. If you have a nationwide approval rating of 21% and you're still getting reelected at a 94% rating, is is that actually an inducement for you to perform better? <laughs> That's bizarre. Like, like, what, 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 what's happening now is that there are these structural impediments where it's almost impossible to topple an incumbent. Over 80% are in safe seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like you have these primaries where all I have to... And, and this is actually one reason why they can't get much done is that they are better off not passing legislation... And then being able to say, well, like I stood for my principles right. and not getting primaried by someone in their party, then it. reaching across the aisle and saying, look, let's compromise. Because if they compromise, then they're more likely to get challenged. Uh, so as someone who likes to, to try figure out what the incentives are and what the structures are, you can improve. Like we have mm-hmm. to just face facts and say, look, this government is not actually designed to perform at a high level, uh, regardless of the, the party in power. and like and, 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 and that's what we have to change.
0: I think I figured out why you didn't get elected by the way, you're way too smart and reasonable to uh, work within these extremes. It's, it's, uh, you know, a lot of the things that you why? say. <laughs> I want to talk to you a little bit about social issues right now. Um, it's frustrating for me when I did the show brother last week with Don jr. The amount of, I mean, very, very strong, opinions left and right it makes it very difficult to even get a sentence out even today the 45 things I've said already are going to get just destroyed right I'm trying to trying to be reasonable but you look at what's going on in the world and there's these peaceful protesters that were taking place but there's also riots there's been a lot of property damage done one of the things with Joe and Kamala that's frustrated me is why can't you be very supportive of peaceful protests but at the same time come out very strong in support of protecting these businesses that are being destroyed, protecting property that's being destroyed, and condemning it in the strongest terms. Not like, okay, I condemned it, I said it, but we kind of know where I'm really headed here. I feel like that's a, if people are right now in the middle looking at it, safety, law and order is what Trump calls it, right? That's a big issue for people right now, and they don't hear the sort of Backing of law and order from that ticket that I think most people think is just even reasonable. Do you agree with that, or do you think that they've come out real strong in support of, of law and order? Well,
1: I, I think you have to look at law and order along three different lines. Um, so, number one is uh, you have police officers doing things that uh, that they shouldn't be doing, uh, mm-hmm. and so that that's like issue number one. Mm-hmm. issue number two is you have people destroying property that they should not be doing. Mm-hmm. And then issue number three is you have uh, vigilantism and responses to either number one or number two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to to look at it and say, none of these things is acceptable and we have mm-hmm. to try and iron out each of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that Joe and Kamala have been on ambiguous saying, uh, you know, riots are, are wrong. Property destruction is wrong. Uh, you know, go home, like, let's protest in a, a way that's peaceful, uh, and will help us towards a positive resolution. Um, but you have to look at each of these three, and you can't just pick and choose one of the three and say, like, hey, law and order, but I don't care about police officers doing wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't care about vigilantism. I just care about property destruction. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you have to, to to say that all of these uh, is a pro- that, like, all of them are wrong. You know, like police officers should not be um, abusing their their position in a way that we all see in front of us, uh, you know, and in some cases, um, you know, the lethal consequences. People should not be rioting and torching things or, or, um, you know, like destroying businesses that people spent a lifetime building up. And people should not be engaging in vigilantism um, that... Uh, you know, in some cases also is like um, resulted in in tragic loss of life. Mm. I feel like most every American listening to this agrees with me on like all of these counts where it's like each of these three things is a problem and you'd have tried to tackle Mm. uh, each of them in turn. Um, The the issues that we've had just very, very, like, like you said, like very, very uh, emotionally charged and fraught Mm. and polarized discussions around it, where people think that one of these three things is, um, is more somewhat acceptable to the others. Mm-hmm. And we have to be clear that none of these things uh, can be accepted. Like we have to say, look, like it's wrong um, on every front.
0: I totally agree with you. I just wish I saw more of that. I, I'd like to see the president come out a little bit more um, empathetically uh, towards um, the social injustice that's clearly takes place in this country to this day. And then I would like to see um, Joe and Kamala. And, and
1: I'm sorry if I don't know this. Like, are you a parent?
0: I am. I have two children. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I, I talked to Jacob Blake's father after he saw his son in the hospital. And like talking to a father who just like seen his his paralyzed son. Like, I mean, like that, that's the kind of thing, like as a parent, you're like, you know, no parent should ever mm-hmm. have that kind of experience. So like, I, I agree with you that there's, um, it, it's like just as, as a human being, like seeing what's going on in this country. Um, Like we have to to be able to to be better than this, but also be able to relate to what different families are going through.
0: I think sometimes it's really difficult because, you know, it's interesting. This is stuff I didn't think we would talk about, but I'm glad that we are. It's hard for, um, you know, for me, uh, I've not had to warn my son, you know, about how to interact. It, It never occurred to me that hey, if you get pulled over, you know, these are things that, you know, black people in our country I've had to warn their children about and worry about, and I just—it's um, wrong. It breaks my heart. We need to do something about that, right? And and it's—it's um, it's something I'm so passionate. about. I've come out very strongly about it. it it's just—you speak of children to everyone that's in this country. Just imagine worrying about that. And even if you, in your mind, think, well, maybe they've in in because of their experience, they worry about it more than you know. You may think they need to. This is their day-to-day experience. Then the other side of the coin is is that Blake, who I've defended, by the way, uh, with my interview with Don Jr. At the same time, there's people that are like, hey, you know, let's be under- let's understand this. The police were called on this guy. He was accused of rape. You know, there's that other side of it that we lose sight. It's almost like because of Blake's background, that somehow the impact on some people is lost on them about the man was shot seven times in the back, right? And and it's all these nuances make it so noisy and so difficult. Maybe this is a guy that needed to be arrested, maybe this is a guy that needs to be in jail, maybe he was doing some horrible things, and maybe he shouldn't have been shot seven times in the back also at the same time. Why that can't be discussed without both sides being mad at you is beyond my belief that we live in a time like that today
1: you know a significant portion of it, Ed and I know you're active on social media I am too it's a, a mm-hmm. you know it's an element of running for president um, a feature of social media is that uh, negative and divisive sentiments and ideas uh, just spread much more powerfully and quickly. Like if I say something positive, um, you know, it'll just disappear. But if I say something negative, it'll get shared apparently six times more frequently. Uh, and so if you have that set of incentives, again, I'm an incentives guy. Like if you have, uh, incentives to be more, uh, aggressive, uh, or, um, antagonistic, uh, then that's the direction that, unfortunately, the the medium rewards. Uh, and you and I are old enough to remember a time before social media. And social media has a lot of tremendous features to sure. it. Um, but it, it also has this terrible feature where it turns us against each other. Uh, and the technology companies profit at higher levels, the more animated we get, unfortunately, like if we all just sang kumbaya and got along and like, didn't, it's like, you know, they'd make less money. Yeah. Um, not to say that, that it's, it's a hundred percent deliberative in that way, but their algorithm is designed that way.
0: Why do you think the media doesn't give, uh, conservatives a fair shake? I, mean, I maybe you don't agree with that, but I, mean, I look at the media, set Fox News aside. My gosh, like I, I, I get that the president's, um, dialogue creates this sort of antagonistic environment, you could certainly argue that. But I don't don't feel like we have an independent media anymore and that scares me. You know, The social media aspect that you've described is I think a ripple effect of traditional media as well. The traditional media is so polarized, it creates human beings that are polarized that then have their own version of that media that we use on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and these other places do you do you agree that the media has a very left slant and do you yes. think that that's a good thing
1: well I, I think the media uh is very polarized and polarizing mm. um i think that they have found that their uh ratings uh, and advertisers are awarded for messaging that caters to a particular audience and so you identify your audience and then you put out news that reinforces that point of view mm. uh and uh, and it's not—it's not a positive thing for any of us. Uh, it sets us up for then uh, being angry at each other on social media, and then social media yes. makes that exponentially worse in in various ways. Uh, it's a major problem, and uh, there, it's going to be hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Right. But I'm—I'm I'm determined that we have to, particularly Ed, because we are at a cusp of having. Uh, deep videos where people think you and I are having this conversation like, maybe we're not, maybe it's just uh, you know, like, <laughs> like a video, <laughs> with audio, um, like a uh, synthetic creation that AI has enabled. Uh, we're getting to a point now where individuals with laptops are going to do things that were previously only available to uh, special effects studios, the Hollywood studios. Uh, and an expert I talked to said that um, up to 90% of videos online could eventually be uh, synthetic Uh, And so like, what happens when you can't even believe what you're seeing? Uh, And so and we've been set up for this, like we've been set up right now to be distrustful and and mistrustful. Mm -hmm. You talk about the media. And this is one thing that I'm digging into, because I think it's so important. Uh, Nationwide, about 40% of Americans now trust the media. It's like 41%. That's been declining steadily for for, four years. Uh, among Republicans and people on the right, it's 20%. Mm-hmm. Among Democrats, it's 60%. Okay. Uh, so you have like a, a much higher trust in the national media. And then you have media organizations that uh, then put out messages that reinforce certain uh, sentiments and, and impressions. Uh, and so that that's the way we're getting polarized right now. Uh, mm-hmm. And podcasts like this one, um, are in some ways an antidote because you have independent voices and it's the human conversation. You can have a one-on-one dialogue like this. And one of the things I learned running for president is that people behave very, very differently if you're talking to them in person or one-on-one than if it's like in an <laughs> on, a on, social media post. So there's something very humanizing and organic and, and um, reasonable mm-hmm. um, about podcasts, um, uh, which can help, uh, help dispel some of the polarization um, but in that context, also, um, you have to be realistic that social media is almost certainly a net negative for us in terms of mental health. Uh, and. Um, and our ability to come to common ground and solutions, particularly in an era when we might not even be able to believe what we're seeing or hearing.
0: Gosh, brother, I got to tell you, because as someone who's, you know, pretty prominent on social media, it isn't good for your mental health most of the time. And we've got this vicious cycle in the country today where, you know, you're, if you're a liberal, you're watching MSNBC or probably CNN, which is very liberal now. And if you're conservative, you watch Fox, you're being fed what you already believe. And then because of the way these algorithms work, that's the same thing coming to our phones. And so one of the only safe places, now the pr- frustrating part about that, if you're watching YouTube, all the comments below that are not positive, right? The YouTube, it's, like, it's amazing how polarized we become. But my biggest concern is, and I want to go one more thing on the election, then ask you an entrepreneurship question because you've been great with your time, is I have a concern and it's a, a fear of mine that um, we're not going to know potentially who won this election on election night. I think there's a potential for that not because i think trump's going to contest or biden's going to contest necessarily we just
1: might not know yeah
0: we may not know because of mail-in voting and my understanding andrew maybe they're working on it but some of the very significant states um don't even begin to read their mail-in ballots until polls close and so yep. um i think everyone listening to this should just know this there is a f- decent chance we won't know that night And I'm worried, as charged up as the media gets everybody, that we could have rioting on either side that could be quite significant. And you do hear the murmurs and rumors of civil discourse, civil unrest, and maybe civil war in the worst case scenario. And I almost feel like someone like you and I need to be at least preparing people for the fact that it's completely reasonable and possible. We may not know the winner election night, true?
1: True, we should prepare people for that. One of the things I'm suggesting to people is instead of thinking of it as election day, you should think of it as election month. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean that both before and after the fact, because for a lot of people, you can vote early, you can apply for a mail-in ballot, like the entire process can take place week ahead of time. And then we might be in for a multi-week wait as count mail-in ballots in various swing states that the media organizations will not be able to call on election night. Uh, and we should not be uh, be afraid of that reality um, because it's a feature of where we are right now, um, where a lot of people are going to be mailing in, in votes, and the those votes take some time to count the way that we're currently uh, counting them. Uh, I am I'm, I'm distressed by the general state of our election infrastructure. Uh, like I've lived, you know. Examples of this through the primary, where Iowa just couldn't count the votes for a while, and like like there are various things where there's all this attention that's going into these elections. Uh, but if you look at the organizations uh, and the people involved with actually tabulating votes, uh, it, it's it, it's not uh, <laughs> it's not going. A- always like the folks that you'd want mm-hmm. to be uh, in charge of a very time sensitive, very uh, high impact process. Um, so hunker down. I agree with you, Ed. We should prepare people. Uh, we, we might be for a little while.
0: Yeah. Agreed. I've enjoyed today, Andrew. Um, I want to ask you a final question. Uh, and it relates not to politics finally, which is entrepreneurship. Um, you're the son of immigrants. You've become tremendously successful. You took some huge risks leaving the law profession to go become an entrepreneur. A couple of your first businesses weren't successful. Um yep. <laughs> and you but and you become this success. And I mean, imagine this guys, your parents um are Taiwanese immigrants. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yep. They came here as students in the 60s. They met at UC Berkeley. Imagine California. that, you
0: guys. And now we know why you're liberal. They met at Berkeley. Um, but they, uh, his parents meet, and they have this boy who grows up to become what they hope would be an attorney, becomes an entrepreneur. I'm sure that freaked him out a little bit. And then he becomes yep. this very, very <laughs> successful entrepreneur. And that young man, many years later, as a young man, is sitting on a debate stage, running for the president of the United States. It's a truly remarkable story. And it's, um, it's inspiring what you've become. And uh, and I like the difference you make in the world, man. I'm, we don't agree on everything, but I, I, I really enjoy your company. I've enjoyed the conversation. There's a lot of people that listen to my show that have a dream as well. And they may be stuck in a career right now that kind of they were told to be in or the world told them they should be in. And they've got this feeling in their heart, that calling that you had, that they want to make a dream come true in their life and they're wondering what they can, they're down. COVID hasn't been good to most people, right? There's this sort of just consciousness issue. It's been devastating. What advice would you give to somebody out there listening to this? Lastly, who's got a dream, they've got some anxiety. They're big on Trump, let's say they're worried as heck Biden's getting in there or they don't like Trump and they're just praying he gets out and they've got all these things running through their head, but they've still got that dream. What would your advice be?
1: Well, thank you for uh, for framing my story in, in that way. Certainly, I consider myself an entrepreneur first and foremost. And even running for president, uh, it was the same kind of calculation, Ed, where I looked up and I said, um, so I consider myself a problem solver. And the problems I saw were getting bigger and bigger. And I did not believe that our political class was going to respond to them. And so I said, well, if this is the biggest problem I can see, and I'm supposed to be uh, this entrepreneur like let me see what i can do to solve that uh and then you look and say well it would involve running for president um what are the rules for that you have to be 35 or older you have to uh be born in this country and i was like check and check those are only rules okay like uh, you know we we can we can do this um and and when i first started my run there were not many people that thought it was a smart thing to do uh or that it was going to be um, actually effective in generating energy around these solutions but Uh, thanks to a lot of people who got behind me and believed in me. And uh, eventually, you know, we raised $40 million and got hundreds of thousands of Americans around the the country uh, excited about a different approach. Uh, And people now regard my campaign as a success. Uh, But like Ed said, my first companies did not succeed. Uh, You know, my parents were very, very concerned about me. And my advice to you, if you're struggling right now, first you would have to be odd not to be struggling right now. We are all struggling right now. I mean, Ed's a parent, I'm a parent. So you like, you wake up and like, you know, your kids are bouncing off the walls and <laughs> like, like it's, it's a tough time. So number one is to just be, uh, be looking out for yourself uh, where whatever it is that you find rejuvenating or recharging, just make sure and do it. Uh, and uh, that could be nature, could be exercise. I can sense that Ed, Ed's a fitness nut. so like i recommend it um reading a book very very positive and helpful and and studies have shown that it's also great for your development social media not very good screens in general not very good so number one is to do the things that uh you know make you stronger because you guys got to take care of yourself job one uh number two is to um, reach out to folks and make sure that you're able to feel valued And, and we all can do something that's going to, to move the needle for someone in this time, even if it's something as straightforward as just uh, reaching out and FaceTiming like uh, someone you haven't talked to in a little while, uh, just try and stay connected to folks uh, because that will actually make you stronger too. Uh, you know, helping other people actually helps you um, is the, the yeah. principle that um, right now, it's, it's hard to see that every day, but it's true. Like you, you help other people, you get stronger from it. Uh, and the third thing is uh, is to try and put yourself in position to accomplish your goals, even if that, that goal got pushed back a little bit. One reason I ran for president is because a rule in life I have is you have to give yourself a chance to win uh, or you have to give yourself a chance to solve the problem. So whatever vision you have for yourself, just give yourself a chance to win. Uh, and it could be that that vision gets pushed back a little bit because of the circumstances we're in. But there's no reason why you're not going to be able to get there, maybe over a slightly longer time, time period. Uh, I've been there. I've been through ups and downs, failures and successes. Uh, and so much of it is around uh, you're being true to what you see for yourself. And then other people will actually see that you're convicted, that you're, uh, that nothing's going to actually keep you from pursuing your goal. And uh, over time, they'll end up supporting you. Uh, that, that was true for my presidential run. It'll be true for other people as well.
0: So good, brother. I must tell you, I enjoyed today. I enjoyed my time with Don Jr. as well. Um, I have a feeling you and I are going to be friends. I, I really do. I so hope so, I, Ed.
1: You seem yeah. like a great guy. And I just love entrepreneurs. To, like, I, You know, running a private company was like the greatest experience I had. Um, I still miss it, honestly. You know, like, uh, <laughs> like, like the elements of it. Uh, and, and to me... Um, politics ought to be about enabling more people to accomplish their dreams and goals and ambitions, uh, like that, that should be the entire ball game.
0: I agree. It's to create that environment. And, um, guys, this is what, um, political discussion can be like in this day and age where there's respectful, uh, somewhat disagreement and some consensus on things. And that's how you move the conversation forward. you know, what you did, Andrew, more than anything by running for office is you've improved the conversation you stimulated other ideas, you've improved the dialogue, you've improved the tone, and uh, I'm grateful that uh, you exist in the world, brother. So thank you for today. everybody. <laughs> Thanks, everybody follow Andrew on social media, and if you're not following me, I run the Max Out two-minute drill every day on Instagram. I make a post every day at 7.30 Pacific time, guys, every day, Monday through Friday. Have your notifications on. When I post, if you comment, you're in a drawing every day. That drawing can be coached by me, meet my guests, my book, get Max Out gear, some people fly on the jet with me once in a while, come see people speak. It's a pretty wonderful experience. I pick somebody every single day. If you miss the first two minutes, just make a comment on every post I make all week at any time, 1030 at night, doesn't matter, make a comment. And if you reply to people's comments, it increases your chances as well, because I want to engage, I want to connect with you, and I want to bring you the best people in the world. I want to improve your life by getting you to think things that you weren't thinking before. And hopefully, Andrew and I accomplish that for you today. So God bless you all, and Max out. This is The Ed Show.